This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hi, this is Michael. And this is Dan. Today is Friday, August 9th, but we recorded this episode in mid-July of 2019. Since then, there have been several mass shootings which have captured the nation's attention. And we just wanted to come on and offer our condolences to the victims, the families, and the communities affected by these shootings. We also want to help support social studies educators seeking to address the numerous interrelated issues, including gun control, white supremacy, misogyny, as we both deliberate and act on these issues with students. Today's episode centers around research done on activism from Parkland students. We hope that it helps bring inspiration, as it did for both our guests and ourselves. We also wanted to let you know that we worked to release this episode a little earlier than we anticipated in conjunction with a response from the College and University Faculty Assembly of the National Council for the Social Studies. That's the, you know, many of the authors that we have on discuss their their research published in Theory and Research in Social Education. And our guests in this episode, Kathleen and Dan, helped to, helped to put together that statement. As a board member, I can tell you that CUFA as an organization is hoping to offer more support to social studies educators in responding to current events. And we hope the statement, the resources in this episode are helpful in addressing this crisis. Thank you for listening. Dan, you uh, taught AP government, right? Yeah, for four years. For four years. And then isn't it you have that awkward time when the test is over but the school year mm-hmm. continues? How did you use mm-hmm. that time? Yeah, there's usually about two to three weeks between the end of AP testing and the end of the school year. And it's seniors, right? Which I I never allowed them to buy into the senioritis claim. I was like, I've I was like, I've taught psychology and looked in the DSM and can't find that diagnosis anywhere. It's so not real. Ignore that. It's, it seems to not be real and just be kind of an excuse. So I did not allow them to actually say that word in my classroom. Is it like a buzzer that every time they did it, you buzzed? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, the shocker, right? Yeah, that yeah. just, yeah, no. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, we would finish the AP test, which, you know, just takes so much time and energy to prepare for. And, you know, the AP curriculum is... Like, I really enjoyed learning about the intricacies of of government, but it was nice to be done with it. And, you know, my dissertation topic was kind of on this a little bit because I I did my dissertation about really what did my students take out of, like, a government class, right? I tried to make my government class as relevant as possible. I worked really hard at that every day. But in the end, you're you're still driven by the AP curriculum, right, learning, like, that a bill has to be put in the hopper, right? Really important information for a 17 or 18 year old to have. And so once we finished the test, my goal was always just to do something that they wanted, which I think that there's a disconnect between the curriculum and what students really care about. And so we would pick projects. Yeah. It'd just say, we, let's just do something in our community. What are things 
that you think we need to address. And each of my classes would pick a project and we had three weeks with like, you know, 15 to 25 of us to work on the project. Interesting. What were some of the projects that your classes picked? They're a variety of things. One class I remember was really concerned that the, this is about 2000, I think 10, 11, when I'm remembering this project and the, there was really poor recycling in our city. You basically had to drop off yourself. There wasn't curbside pickup uh-huh. at that time. And a lot of our students were just like, this is, we should have this at this point. This is kind of ridiculous. This and is so 2011. They, yeah, it was 2011. And so they worked up a plan to go and write letters to, you know, our city council members in, this is Moore, um, Oklahoma. And, and so they did that. And then one of the students ended up speaking at a city council meeting oh, wow. on, on the issue. And like everyone, it was very, they were actually very supportive at the city council meetings, which generally is the case. Yeah. At a lot of city council, they were very excited that a young person came to talk. And it was very simple. We were just like, we think more should have curbside recycling at this point. It's an important issue. And we also, you know, had been working with our environmental club, which I was the sponsor for at our school. And, and we had added recycling in our school. To, to but we were in charge of it like we did it all like we fill we put out the recycling bins and we emptied them and took them to the recycling center yeah. we did all that work as part of our environmental club so students were pretty active on a variety of issues i like that they're looking at how they can impact the government in this case a city government that's a really neat way to kind of like coalesce with your you know like an ending like a capstone project for your for your course and city government is such so much easier to get involved in, right? Yeah. Often, I think students can sometimes feel overwhelmed with with how do you make a difference in Washington. Although this podcast will talk about students can even do that too, but you know, and so city government is really important. And you know, I'm really involved in my local city government, and it's amazing. Like you can get things done, right? Like it's kind of cool. Like I walk around the city sometimes. I'm like, oh, I got I got a curb cut there, and now people with strollers and wheelchairs can like go there like I've requested that and it happened it's like you can make real tangible things happen at the city level and but the curriculum is so often just federal or very brief overview of state so I think the thing that um, always resonates with me is that you know I didn't know that I was going to be going into higher ed after 2011 it kind of happened in the summer of 2011 I was able to get a job that I didn't know existed at the end of the year but you know the last thing I did with my students is one of my classes chose to do work on hunger issues in our community and so we worked with the food bank in Oklahoma City and so the last thing I did with my students was after the school year had ended and graduation had happened and this just happened to be the time we could work you know work it out to get there we went out to the food bank and packed lunches for kids in the summer and um, it was really cool and I didn't know that was gonna be my last like k-12 experience and I sometimes think back about it and like tear up a little bit thinking about all my students who were graduated and cared so much about their community and kids who were going to be hungry in the summer that we went out and, and spent like I think four hours packing lunches that would go out to kids in the community that's great yeah so kids so kids can make a difference they can get involved and make a difference in their world and I guess that brings us to our big discussion today we have two really cool guests who are, so we have on today Kathleen Knight Abowitz and Dan Memlock. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled that you're both here. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourselves and your background in education? 
Yeah, I'll start. Thanks for having us on this great podcast. I am a professor of um, educational leadership here at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And I've been here for almost 25 years. And I am a philosopher of education, but I've always been interested in questions of democracy and citizenship in my scholarship and in my work. And I come to, I came to Miami actually from a background in service learning. So it was interesting to hear you talk, Dan, about some of the work that you d did with your students that I would consider in the realm of service learning as well as citizenship. And so that's my background. I did service learning programming in um, Virginia for a while, but teach and work with democracy topics here in my teaching and research at Miami. And that's how Danny and I came together. He was a graduate student here a few years ago. And so we've been working on these ideas for a while. And I also have a strong background in um, the scholarship of John Dewey and trying to think about how to apply Deweyan ideas that are 100 years old to what's happening right now, because I think we need to think about how Dewey is useful and not simply revere him. Or I think I'm interested in trying to reconstruct some of Dewey's ideas for what's happening right now in our country with education, with politics, with citizenship. So that's a little bit about me. And we do have a Dewey and the social studies episode for anyone that wants to go back and listen to. Awesome. I always liked his decimal system. <laughs> That's what my husband said. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and Dad, you might tell us about yourself. Okay. As Kathleen noted, I completed my PhD in education leadership at Miami University a couple of years ago under the advising of Kathleen I. Tabovis and Wishet Kwanz. In my dissertation, I explored sociocultural aspects of technology in education. And I was specifically interested in issues uh, related to citizenship, democracy, and education. My main interest in general are philosophy and sociology of education. And uh, what I'm doing now is in a way an expansion of my dissertation. I'm working in Project Summon, which is an initiative of Concordia University, UNESCO, and the federal government. And this project works to build awareness and create spaces for a more pluralistic dialogue with the aim to resist different forms of online aid. One interesting thing that, that may be relevant to what we are going to discuss today is my interest that goes beyond my interest in educational technology and sociocultural studies is that I, my interest in aesthetics education. And in this respect, I, prior to my PhD studies, I was working for seven years in a national arts education program in Israel. So when considering, I think, you know, the paper we are discussing today, uh, the nexus of my different fields of interest was very relevant to the ways we can conceptualize or the way that Kathleen and I discussed through the paper uh, issues pertaining to civic education, political emotions, and perhaps a broader understanding of education in general. Well, we're so glad to have you both on today, and we're here to discuss your recently published article in Theory and Research in Social Education, which is titled, The Case of Hashtag Never Again MSD, When Proceduralist Civics Becomes Public Work by Way of Political Emotion. So first and foremost, congratulations on your publication. Thank Ooh. you. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? We 
began to get interested in the students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, as the whole country was when this was happening a year ago, a year and a half ago. And Danny and I watched with real interest because as a Deweyan scholar and someone interested in citizenship, I felt as though we were watching a citizenship experiment in action when what they were doing after a mass shooting at their high school was so unusual and so effective and relative to other kinds of activism, so it had a real impact in many ways. And you can argue about whether it's had a lasting enough impact or a profound enough impact on some of the dialogue around you know, violence or, or um, gun control or whatever, but was really aware that these students were doing something unique and special and important. So was really transfixed with thinking about this as a case. And so we began to think about how does this, what, what are they doing that's so profound here? What, how can we think about this in terms of citizenship education and what this means potentially for teachers who are thinking about teaching citizenship. And we began to sort of think about it as a case and do some analysis of it as a kind of bounded case and was really struck when we were reading, you know, I basically for a while read everything I could get my hands on about, you know, journalists commenting and, 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 and otherwise. And I was, we were both really struck with the kind of high school that these kids seem to come out of and from what we could learn about it. And um, so it just seems like one of the commentators talked about it as a very good, traditional, pretty well-funded public high school that, as you mentioned earlier about AP government, you know, has a very long standing and what seems to be a talented AP government teacher and also has a great wealth of co-curricular programs and, and arts and humanities kinds of offerings for students. And so we were struck with the kind of resources that these kids were able to summon in their own uh, educational background. And so began to think about what is this teaching us about how kids are thinking about citizenship and what ignites the kind of civic agency that we see at work in this case. And when you start looking at this case, you cannot help but think about emotion and the use of what we call or what theorists call political emotion which is how we use um, emotion as a way of thinking about what's happening in public life and how we judge it and respond to it. And so political emotion is something every citizen needs or uses uh, as a way to kind of make sense of the world or react to the world and then respond to the world, judge, make a judgment about whether something's right or wrong and either choose to be involved in something or not. And so we began to think about this potentially missing piece in citizenship education, which is political emotion. So that is one of the, I think, takeaways of the article and takeaways from our analysis of the never again MSD movement, if you will. I'm not sure movement is exactly the right word, but civic action. So that's that's where the article, I think, started and, and put us on a path to think about political emotion. It's really interesting because, you know, I'm when I think about what happened, I remember first just being really um, 
impressed and motivated by all of these kids who became very involved in these public discussions and moved it in a way that previous school shootings like hadn't moved the bar and seemed to generate um, at least temporarily for a while like more action than we'd seen previously. But it is, I had a sense, I mean, I think so often it was just a sense of anger, you know, had a sense of anger that we have to do something about this and empathy and compassion. And so much of our politics is about that. But it's interesting because we don't teach about that very much, right? You know, even with when you discuss these fake news issues, we had Wayne Journal to talk about his recent book on unpacking fake news. And, you know, so much of our political responses are not driven by logical reasoning, right? It's driven by our feelings. And so I think there's a really interesting topic about how do we take that into considerations and what do we do with that, you know, in classrooms? I think that's where the whole concept of civic culture came to us, like thinking about the Deweyan perspective on this. Deweyan, of course, thought about democracy as something much more than happens in the state house or in Washington, D.C. As you were talking earlier, um, Dan, about doing projects in the community with your students, Dewey is much more interested in democracy as a way of life. And so when we think about how people engage with public issues, thinking about the notion of civic culture as a much more broader way to think about political engagement than just how a bill becomes a law or those kinds of things, which are really the kind of stuff of a lot of curriculum in public schools in the U.S. And it's not that those things aren't important. It's just that they don't engage one of the key components of how people actually think about public life, which is through their emotional responses to things. And I feel like the Deweyan notion of civic culture was a way for us to think about how do you broaden the perspective, broaden the prism of how teachers can help students think about who they are as political beings. And, and unfortunately, I think the way that often happens is, as you say, after the AP test is over, what can we do at the end of the year, you know? And, and teachers, I think a lot of teachers know that that's what kids maybe want to be doing, but, but isn't, there isn't room, there isn't time, and often teachers feel threatened that, by the conflict that some of this stuff might generate. Although your examples illustrate beautifully that you don't have to pick examples that are going to endanger your job or, you know, potentially wreak havoc with your with your contract. Yeah, and I would like to add about it. And I think, you know, this combination of civic culture and emotions is also important, you know, by the way, we usually frame civic, you know, we understand, you know, citizenship education and the way that we understand civic culture. And one of the questions that Kathleen and I asked in the beginning of this article is what do we mean by civic culture? I mean, one of the problems that that uh, we see in citizenship education is that it usually narrows down to these procedural aspects of of citizenship education or civic life. So what do we mean? Do we mean by fulfilling your duty to vote? What does it mean, you know, engaging in political struggle? Does it mean signing petition, demonstrating, um, taking part in non-government and so on? Uh, or is it about being, you know, like Dewey suggested, being an active member in a community? But what does that mean, you know, being an active member in the community? What it entails? And and what is the nature of the community? Who is included and who is excluded from that community? So I think that all of these questions are things that we have to um, tackle with and, and to encounter. Uh, and we also need to think about, you know, beyond the AP classes or beyond the tests, how do we cultivate these values or ideas to the young generation, uh, which is too often perceived as indifferent to political life? 
I recently wrote an article that's going to come out in social education. Maybe we'll talk about it later on the podcast, Michael, with uh, Marie Heath. And it was about how social media has changed political activism. And I noticed you used the hashtag in it. And one thing that, that working on that article made me think about is the ways that we actually teach teach tactics of democracy, right? Like the things you do. And in our, a lot of our courses, we often teach like, oh, you call your legislator and ask them to make a change. But if you've ever had a legislator that's been in office for 40 years, who you've disagreed with the entire time, you kind of know what, what, how useless that can feel sometimes. Sometimes you get nice form letters back. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Sometimes they respond to you in a real way. And sometimes you get form letters, right? I've had ones that were like, yeah, thank you for, for you know, asking for this. Uh, we don't agree with you and are going to not do it. <laughs> um, I was like, that's at least really honest. But so so what it, did you delve into a little bit of that online activism, how that was a part of it? It's sometimes termed as slacktivism, right? But I think it can be part of an ecology of doing something as long as you're not just only doing the hashtag or only doing the online petition, right? As long as it's part of a, a larger kind of ecology of activism in your life and in our communities. How, how did you interpret the, the work that, that these students did? I really was fascinated with that they didn't, they weren't, they weren't just slacktivist in my view. Like that's part of what made them fascinating is that they were using social media in some ways just to express their indignation. And indignation is this really useful political emotion because it combines kind of anger, this really visceral anger with a kind of target of injustice and indignation. So we were reading about political emotions and we were seeing these indignant, like, you know, telling the president of the United States to F you basically. And, And so there was that whole emotional component, but they were also like meeting with officials and organizing rallies in the summer. And so it was part of a larger strategy. And so often, I think we, and we on the left kind of really get excited about activism and protests. But actually, as you fully know, and listeners of this podcast fully know, that's not how change happens. And it also doesn't happen when one person calls a legislator, as you say. But So it was interesting to sort of see these young people obviously using social media, obviously kind of funneling their indignation and trying to build off that energy. But I think they were also engaged in learning about political realities and how they could use that moment usefully and then making mistakes as well. And so I I was interested in that the social media was an important and key part of it, but there was more there. There's a lot more there. And I think that's why this makes such an interesting case study for a while, because it'll be interesting to revisit it in a few years to kind of assess how did this actually work as a, as a political kind of effort, both the social media pieces, as well as some of the other actions they did. And I was particularly impressed with how they were creating social media uh, content. They weren't just responding emotionally to the president's tweets or whoever's tweet, Marco Rubio's tweets, but they were creating content to try to communicate ideas, which is a use of political emotion that's far more strategic and more part of a larger plan to make change. And so 
that's what I saw with their use of social media, that it was a part of seemingly a part of a larger strategy. Uh, but if this is, of course, gained through reading about them, mostly third hand, this is not an ethnography. We don't know what happened, you know, in the trenches of them working on this. But but that was that was our impression. Dan, I think that you mentioned before how uh, city councils like to see kids come and become active. And I think that what they did very effectively is that they didn't ask for pity. They didn't ask, you know, that people would come and they didn't ask for condolences. They actually expressed very, very effectively their indignation and they asked questions. And I think, you know, that that was shocked. That was the shocking thing, you know, for many people. They didn't uh, expect that, you know, 15 or 16 years old will ask them. Uh, questions that have been recurrently asked in the political life, but not by st- by students. So I think that it also raised, you know, some attention and and got this kind of momentum that helped them to be so successful. I find it really interesting too. I mean, I remember I followed Emma Gonzalez right after, who not only is like a really astute and thoughtful and talented like tweeter, right? Like she did it well but was like an incredible speaker. Like she, when she went and had opportunities to talk, she did. And, and same with David Hogg, who comments a little bit more. But I can also not, you know, I think within the, these success stories, the, and you could say that it's not been as successful as we still hope, right? There's still a lot of things that they desire to be, to be done. But it also shows how negative the, the federal and the national politics can be towards them because, man, they had to deal with all of the negative sides of our current politics from, you know, being attacked by adults as part of interest groups, the way the NRA went after these kids, to having to deal with, you know, social media and YouTube's inability to deal with cons- the rise of conspiracy theorists and being labeled, you know, crisis actors, which is some a term nobody knew about and was kind of created by these conspiracy theorists and that David Hogg wasn't really there and it's been done with numerous things. And so I can't, it also, you know, would be easy for kids to look at this case and really study it and be like, I don't want to go through the emotional trauma of having to fight adults with these terrible agendas and intentions too. So there's a lot of lessons to be taken from what happened, but man, I'm, I'm proud. They make me proud, you know, for what they did. But it, there's, it's scary, too, what they've had to go through to do it. It is scary, and I think that that's the reason some people are afraid of getting involved in politics. I think that when I asked my students uh, at Miami University if they're engaging in political action, you know, whatever that means, most of them said that they're not interested and they're not keeping up with politics and they had different reasons why they're not interested in politics. But I think that one of the themes that we analyze here is the way that we can advance civic culture as patterns of disagreement and the way that we can understand it as a conflict and not as a place that you can just attack and slam someone who doesn't agree with you. So I agree. I think it is very problematic. And I think that we have to strive for advancing a culture, a democratic culture, which in a way, you know, will not leave, you know, remainders that will give voice to those people out of the consensus, the people that try to ask hard questions, especially if you think about the next generation that, you know, want to say, yeah, we have the power to change and we have the power to make this place, you know, better. So what are some of the key takeaways that teachers can take from your study and from the Never Again MSD? 
One of the important takeaways for us, I believe, is that we are not saying that teachers should be teaching kids to go be like these never again activists. So there's not a kind of literal argument that this is what we should be producing, right? This we we make a lot of effort in the article to talk about how this is a extreme case and we look at it because it is an extreme case. And so thinking about how we can analyze it is more about what we see as implications for tapping into political emotion, to thinking about how we teach citizenship across the curriculum, not just in social studies classes, but in English classes and communication, you know, all the classes that teach about communication, all the co-curricular experiences, the arts and the humanities. So that's an implication as well as I think an implication is how do you get students engaged in these conversations and these um, debates in a more uh, live action way? And how do you make space for it? So it's it's about how you can think about how to get students to recognize what political emotion might be, how it works, what are the dangers of certain kinds of political emotion, because it is not necessarily a positive thing. It can be used to to hurt people, to justify kind of, you know, a ganging up on certain populations. It can be used in all kinds of negative ways. So it's not only a, a kind of topic that's worthy, that could be worthy of academic study, but also channeled in some positive ways to help students get involved. And getting involved doesn't mean taking on Marco Rubio and, you know, and the and uh, national legislators. It, I think it, it can mean wherever that is meaningfully experienced for students and uh, where, wherever they can have agency, which for these kids in a particular cultural moment was a kind of federal national landscape. But for most kids, that's not the case. And they're not prepared for that. They're not interested in that. They're, it's much more closer to home. So I think some of the implications are around ha- helping teachers think about what political emotion is, how it might fit into what they do, either in the classroom or advising clubs or working with kids, and then how can they help foster that in addition to the important kind of formal curriculum things that that really foster more traditional ways of getting involved in politics and and the government and knowing about the government. So I think that one of the things that we explored here are what are the conditions that brought the students to be so involved and and to react differently from previous uh, catastrophes. And I think that uh, we saw the humanities and the arts as, as one of the key uh, elements that helped the students to be a bit more informed and critical. Uh, David Ogg mentioned in one of his posts that he doesn't want to be listened only because he is a white privileged student or to his friends. And I think that this is a very important thing. I think that we need to provide uh, other students with the abilities to develop those kind of information as well as agency, you know, the, the ability to, to change. Because apparently those students felt that they have the power, what many students in the country do not feel. So, for example, if if we think about the humanities and the arts, and it gets back to my background in, in, in my work in the past, is, you know, the reason that we say that the humanities and the, and the arts are important is that they're typically not discussed when we think about civics education in schools, but they provide a different nature of conversation in the school. 
I mean, it is in a way a pushback against dominant dominant approaches to education. Instead of seeking the right answer, the, the arts and the humanities provide students the tools to think critical through ideas, to ask questions, to ponder, and develop their position under after considering various perspectives. I also think that the relationship between students and teachers and the kinds of agency the arts can provide to students are important. So education is too often, you know, perceived as hierarchical, right? You have the teacher who knows, who, who delivered the knowledge, and you have the students, what Paulo Freire said, you know, the passivity of, of the learner. And, and I think that it can switch a little bit to have the learner and the teacher go together and to ask questions. So Kathleen mentioned about discussing about different emotions or the way that we can integrate different emotions. Yeah, we can think about how hate, for example, uh, is manifested in online spaces and the way that we can channel it to students and to, to grapple these ideas. And this is one of the things that I'm exploring now, but... That does sound interesting. We may have you back on at some point to discuss that. <laughs> I will be happy to. I- I think a lot of this discussion just reminds me of Dewey's discussion of the child and the curriculum. And the curriculum, so often, it just makes me think about how the curriculum gets in the way of the, the child's real interests, right? And the way of finding the combination of the two is the real goal. But the curriculum dominates so much in school and drives everything. I just want us to go back. We used to have a social studies course called Problems of Democracy that was supposed to be, you know, this integration of actually the child's interests and social issues of importance. And I feel like, gosh, that's like, we just need that. We need more classes like that. But make it happen in your class, right, to the degree that you can. Absolutely. That's, That's a lovely comment. I appreciate that. I hope that we are nearing the end of the standardization and that we, in the next few years, see some loosening up for teachers in regards to them having more agency. But time will tell on that on that score. Let's do it. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Was that another Dewey joke? <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's, let's Dewey it. <laughs> Well, thank you both so much for coming on. We encourage everyone to go check out our show notes. We have a link to the article there and some other resources that can be helpful. And yeah, give give that article a read and think about what you can do in your class. So thank you both for joining us. Thank Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, uh, invite people to send us questions or comments or thoughts uh, from folks who are in social studies education and be great to have a dialogue with people who want to engage our ideas, uh, talk back um, in various ways. So use the emails that are in the articles, uh, you know, bylines there. So thanks. Thanks for the time here. This is terrific. Appreciate what you're doing here. Appreciate your efforts and your and your uh, warm uh, conversation so thank you well thank you and yeah we're glad so we know where to find you guys online that was actually our (laughs) our first (laughs) question but uh so we'll have people email you and we'll have those in the show notes so again yeah thank you for joining us we really enjoyed that and we we do hope to continue this conversation both online and in other spaces sounds good thank you you're welcome i have a question sure At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun and creative in education or you just want to chat, and really you do, 
tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook, and again, in that one other space that I signed us up for once, and I don't remember what it is. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you're looking to be more of an activist in the podcast world, one way to do that is by giving us a five-star review. If you do so, we'll read it on the air, and it helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.